Chapter 30. As the earliest suspicion of dawn appeared on Sunday morning, Huck came groping up the hill and rapped gently at the old Welshman's door. The inmates were asleep, but it was a sleep that was set on a hair trigger, on account of the exciting episode of the night. A call came from a window. Who's there? Huck's scared voice answered in a low tone. Please let me in. It's only Huck Finn. It's a name that can open this door night or day, lad. And welcome. These were strange words to the vagabond boy's ears, and the pleasantest he had ever heard. He could not recollect that the closing word had ever been applied in his case before. The door was quickly unlocked, and he entered. Huck was given a seat and the old man and his brace of tall sons speedily dressed themselves. Now, my boy, I hope you're good and hungry, because breakfast will be ready as soon as the sun's up, and we'll have a piping hot one, two, make yourself easy about that. I and the boys hoped you'd turn up and stop here last night. I was awful scared, said Huck, and I run. I took out when the pistols went off, and I didn't stop for three mile. I've come now because I wanted to know about it, you know, and I come before daylight because I didn't want to run across them devils, even if they was dead. Well, poor chap, you do look as if you'd had a hard night of it, but there's a bed here for you when you've had your breakfast. No, I ain't dead, lad, we are sorry enough for that. You see we knew right where to put our hands on them, by your description, so we crept along on tiptoe till we got within fifteen feet of them, dark as a cellar that sumac path was, and just then I found I was going to sneeze. It was the meanest kind of luck. I tried to keep it back, but no use, t'was bound to come, and it did come. I was in the lead with my pistol raised, and when the sneeze started those scoundrels a rustling to get out of the path, I sung out, fire boys, and blazed away at the place where the rustling was. So did the boys. But they were off in a jiffy, those villains, and we after them, down through the woods. I judge we never touched them. They fired a shot apiece as they started, but their bullets whizzed by and didn't do us any harm. As soon as we lost the sound of their feet we quit chasing, and went down and stirred up the constables. They got a posse together, and went off to guard the river bank, and as soon as it is light the sheriff and a gang are going to beat up the woods. My boys will be with them presently. I wish we had some sort of description of those rascals, t'would help a good deal. But you couldn't see what they were like, in the dark, lad, I suppose? Oh yes, I saw them downtown and followed them. Splendid. Describe them, describe them, the boy. One's the old deaf and dumb Spaniard that's been around here once or twice, and t'other's a mean-looking, ragged. That's enough, lad, we know the men. Happened on them in the woods back of the widows one day, and they slunk away. Off with you, boys, and tell the sheriff, get your breakfast tomorrow morning. The Welshman's sons departed at once. As they were leaving the room Huck sprang up and exclaimed. Oh, please don't tell anybody it was me that blowed on them. Oh, please. All right if you say it, Huck, but you ought to have the credit of what you did. Oh no, no. Please don't tell. When the young men were gone, the old Welshman said. They won't tell, and I won't. But why don't you want it known? Huck would not explain, further than to say that he already knew too much about one of those men and would not have the man know that he knew anything against him for the whole world, he would be killed for knowing it, sure. The old man promised secrecy once more, and said. How did you come to follow these fellows, lad? Were they looking suspicious? Huck was silent while he framed a duly cautious reply. Then he said. Well, you see, I'm a kind of a hard lot, least everybody says so, and I don't see nothing again it, and sometimes I can't sleep much, on account of thinking about it and sort of trying to strike out a new way of doing. That was the way of it last night. I couldn't sleep, and so I come along up street bout midnight, 
a turning it all over, and when I got to that old shackly brick store by the temperance tavern, I backed up again the wall to have another think. Well, just then along comes these two chaps slipping along close by me, with something under their arm, and I reckon they'd stole it. One was a smoking, and t'other one wanted a light, so they stopped right before me and the cigars lit up their faces and I see that the big one was the deaf and dumb Spaniard, by his white whiskers and the patch on his eye, and t'other one was a rusty, ragged-looking devil. Could you see the rags by the light of the cigars? This staggered Huck for a moment. Then he said. Well, I don't know, but somehow it seems as if I did. Then they went on, and you. Followed him, yes. That was it. I wanted to see what was up, they sneaked along so. I dogged him to the witter style, and stood in the dark and heard the ragged one beg for the witter, and the Spaniard swear he'd spile her looks just as I told you and you're too. What? The deaf and dumb man said all that. Hawk had made another terrible mistake. He was trying his best to keep the old man from getting the faintest hint of who the Spaniard might be, and yet his tongue seemed determined to get him into trouble in spite of all he could do. He made several efforts to creep out of his scrape, but the old man's eye was upon him and he made blunder after blunder. Presently the Welshman said. My boy, don't be afraid of me. I wouldn't hurt a hair of your head for all the world. No, I'd protect you, I'd protect you. This Spaniard is not deaf and dumb, you've let that slip without intending it, you can't cover that up now. You know something about that Spaniard that you want to keep dark. Now trust me, tell me what it is, and trust me, I won't betray you. Huck looked into the old man's honest eyes a moment, then bent over and whispered in his ear. Taint a Spaniard, it's Injun Joe. The Welshman almost jumped out of his chair. In a moment he said. It's all plain enough, now. When you talked about notching ears and slitting noses I judged that that was your own embellishment, because white men don't take that sort of revenge. But an Injun. That's a different matter altogether. During breakfast the talk went on, and in the course of it the old man said that the last thing which he and his sons had done, before going to bed, was to get a lantern and examine the style and its vicinity for marks of blood. They found none, but captured a bulky bundle of. Of what? If the words had been lightning they could not have leapt with a more stunning suddenness from Huck's blanched lips. His eyes were staring wide, now, and his breath suspended, waiting for the answer. The Welshman started, stared in return, three seconds, five seconds, ten, then replied. A burglar's tools. Why, what's the matter with you? Huck sank back, panting gently, but deeply, unutterably grateful. The Welshman eyed him gravely, curiously, and presently said. Yes, burglar's tools. That appears to relieve you a good deal. But what did give you that turn? What were you expecting we'd found? Huck was in a close place, the inquiring I was upon him, he would have given anything for material for a plausible answer, nothing suggested itself, the inquiring I was boring deeper and deeper, a senseless reply offered, there was no time to weigh it, so at a venture he uttered it, feebly. Sunday school books, maybe. Poor Huck was too distressed to smile, but the old man laughed loud and joyously, shook up the details of his anatomy from head to foot, and ended by saying that such a laugh was money in a man's pocket, because it cut down the doctor's bill like everything. Then he added. Poor old chap, you're white and jaded, you ain't well a bit, no wonder you're a little flighty and off your balance. But you'll come out of it. Rest and sleep will fetch you out all right, I hope. Huck was irritated to think he had been such a goose and betrayed such a suspicious excitement, for he had dropped the idea that the parcel brought from the tavern was the treasure, as soon as he had heard the talk at the widow's style. He had only thought it was not the treasure, however, he had not known that it wasn't, and so the suggestion of a captured bundle was too much for his self-possession. But on the whole he felt glad the little episode had happened, 
for now he knew beyond all question that that bundle was not the bundle, and so his mind was at rest and exceedingly comfortable. In fact, everything seemed to be drifting just in the right direction. Now, the treasure must be still in number two, the men would be captured and jailed that day, and he and Tom could seize the gold that night without any trouble or any fear of interruption. Just as breakfast was completed there was a knock at the door. Huck jumped for a hiding place, for he had no mind to be connected even remotely with a late event. The Welshman admitted several ladies and gentlemen, among them the widow Douglas, and noticed that groups of citizens were climbing up the hill, to stare at the stile. So the news had spread. The Welshman had to tell the story of the night to the visitors. The widow's gratitude for her preservation was outspoken. Don't say a word about it, madam. There's another that you're more beholden to than you are to me and my boys, maybe, but he don't allow me to tell his name. We wouldn't have been there but for him. Of course this excited a curiosity so vast that it almost belittled the main matter, but the Welshman allowed it to eat into the vitals of his visitors, and through them be transmitted to the whole town, for he refused to part with his secret. When all else had been learned, the widow said. I went to sleep reading in bed and slept straight through all that noise. Why didn't you come and wake me? We judged it weren't worthwhile. Those fellows weren't likely to come again, they hadn't any tools left to work with, and what was the use of waking you up and scaring you to death? My three negro men stood guard at your house all the rest of the night. They've just come back. More visitors came, and the story had to be told and retold for a couple of hours more. There was no Sabbath school during day school vacation, but everybody was early at church. The stirring event was well canvassed. News came that not a sign of the two villains had been yet discovered. When the sermon was finished, Judge Thatcher's wife dropped alongside of Mrs. Harper as she moved down the aisle with the crowd and said. Is my Becky going to sleep all day? I just expected she would be tired to death. Your Becky? Yes, with a startled look, didn't she stay with you last night? Why, no. Mrs. Thatcher turned pale, and sank into a pew, just as Aunt Polly, talking briskly with a friend, passed by. Aunt Polly said. Good morning, Mrs. Thatcher. Good morning, Mrs. Harper. I've got a boy that's turned up missing. I reckon my Tom stayed at your house last night, one of you. And now he's afraid to come to church. I've got to settle with him. Mrs. Thatcher shook her head feebly and turned paler than ever. He didn't stay with us, said Mrs. Harper, beginning to look uneasy. A marked anxiety came into Aunt Polly's face. Joe Harper, have you seen my Tom this morning? Nom. When did you see him last? Joe tried to remember, but was not sure he could say. The people had stopped moving out of church. Whispers passed along, and a boding uneasiness took possession of every countenance. Children were anxiously questioned, and young teachers. They all said they had not noticed whether Tom and Becky were on board the ferryboat on the homeward trip. It was dark, no one thought of inquiring if anyone was missing. One young man finally blurted out his fear that they were still in the cave. Mrs. Thatcher swooned away. Aunt Polly fell to crying and wringing her hands. The alarm swept from lip to lip, from group to group, from street to street, and within five minutes the bells were wildly clanging and the whole town was up. The Cardiff Hill episode sank into instant insignificance, the burglars were forgotten, horses were saddled, skiffs were manned, the ferryboat ordered out and before the horror was half an hour old, two hundred men were pouring down High Road and River toward the cave. All the long afternoon the village seemed empty and dead. Many women visited Aunt Polly and Mrs. Thatcher and tried to comfort them. They cried with them, too, and that was still better than words. All the tedious night the town waited for news, but when the morning dawned at last, all the word that came was, send more candles, and send food. Mrs. Thatcher was almost crazed, and Aunt Polly, also. 
Judge Thatcher sent messages of hope and encouragement from the cave, but they conveyed no real cheer. The old Welshman came home toward daylight, spattered with candle grease, smeared with clay, and almost worn out. He found Huck still in the bed that had been provided for him, and delirious with fever. The physicians were all at the cave, so the widow Douglas came and took charge of the patient. She said she would do her best by him because, whether he was good, bad, or indifferent, he was the Lord's, and nothing that was the Lord's was a thing to be neglected. The Welshman said Huck had good spots in him, and the widow said. You can depend on it. That's the Lord's mark. He don't leave it off. He never does. Puts it somewhere on every creature that comes from his hands. Early in the forenoon parties of jaded men began to straggle into the village, but the strongest of the citizens continued searching. All the news that could be gained was that remotenesses of the cavern were being ransacked that had never been visited before, that every corner and crevice was going to be thoroughly searched, that wherever one wandered through the maze of passages, lights were to be seen flitting hither and thither in the distance, and shoutings and pistol shots sent their hollow reverberations to the ear down the somber aisles. In one place, far from the section usually traversed by tourists, the names Becky and Tom had been found traced upon the rocky wall with candle smoke, and near at hand a grease-soiled bit of ribbon. Mrs. Thatcher recognized the ribbon and cried over it. She said it was the last relic she should ever have of her child, and that no other memorial of her could ever be so precious, because this one parted latest from the living body before the awful death came. Some said that now and then, in the cave, a faraway speck of light would glimmer and then a glorious shout would burst forth and a score of men go trooping down the echoing aisle, and then a sickening disappointment always followed. The children were not there, it was only a searcher's light. Three dreadful days and nights dragged their tedious hours along, and the village sank into a hopeless stupor. No one had heart for anything. The accidental discovery, just made, that the proprietor of the temperance tavern kept liquor on his premises, scarcely fluttered the public pulse, tremendous as the fact was. In a lucid interval, Huck feebly led up to the subject of taverns, and finally asked, dimly dreading the worst, if anything had been discovered at the temperance tavern since he had been ill. Yes, said the widow. Huck started up in bed, wild-eyed. What? What was it? Liquor. And the place has been shut up. Lie down, child, what a turn you did give me. Only tell me just one thing, only just one, please. Was it Tom Sawyer that found it? The widow burst into tears. Hush, hush, child, hush. I've told you before, you must not talk. You are very, very sick. Then nothing but liquor had been found, there would have been a great powwow if it had been the gold. So the treasure was gone forever, gone forever. But what could she be crying about? Curious that she should cry. These thoughts worked their dim way through Huck's mind, and under the weariness they gave him he fell asleep. The widow said to herself. There, he's asleep, poor wreck. Tom Sawyer find it. Pity but somebody could find Tom Sawyer. Ah, there ain't many left, now, that's got hope enough, or strength enough, either, to go on searching. Chapter 31 Now to return to Tom and Becky's share in the picnic. They tripped along the murky aisles with the rest of the company, visiting the familiar wonders of the cave, wonders dubbed with rather over-descriptive names, such as the drawing room, the cathedral, Aladdin's palace, and so on. Presently the hide-and-seek frolicking began, and Tom and Becky engaged in it with zeal until the exertion began to grow a trifle wearisome. Then they wandered down a sinuous avenue holding their candles aloft and reading the tangled webwork of names, dates, post office addresses, and mottos with which the rocky walls had been frescoed, in candle smoke. Still drifting along and talking, they scarcely noticed that they were now in a part of the cave whose walls were not frescoed. They smoked their own names under an overhanging shelf and moved on. 
Presently they came to a place where a little stream of water, trickling over a ledge and carrying a limestone sediment with it, had, in the slow dragging ages, formed a laced and ruffled Niagara in gleaming and imperishable stone. Tom squeezed his small body behind it in order to illuminate it for Becky's gratification. He found that it curtained a sort of steep natural stairway which was enclosed between narrow walls, and at once the ambition to be a discoverer seized him. Becky responded to his call, and they made a smoke mark for future guidance, and started upon their quest. They wound this way and that, far down into the secret depths of the cave, made another mark, and branched off in search of novelties to tell the upper world about. In one place they found a spacious cavern, from whose ceiling depended a multitude of shining stalactites of the length and circumference of a man's leg, they walked all about it, wondering and admiring, and presently left it by one of the numerous passages that opened into it. This shortly brought them to a bewitching spring, whose basin was encrusted with a frostwork of glittering crystals, it was in the midst of a cavern whose walls were supported by many fantastic pillars which had been formed by the joining of great stalactites and stalagmites together, the result of the ceaseless water drip of centuries. Under the roof vast knots of bats had packed themselves together, thousands in a bunch, the lights disturbed the creatures and they came flocking down by hundreds, squeaking and darting furiously at the candles. Tom knew their ways and the danger of this sort of conduct. He seized Becky's hand and hurried her into the first quarter that offered, and none too soon, for a bat struck Becky's light out with its wing while she was passing out of the cavern. The bats chased the children a good distance, but the fugitives plunged into every new passage that offered, and at last got rid of the perilous things. Tom found a subterranean lake, shortly, which stretched its dim length away until its shape was lost in the shadows. He wanted to explore its borders, but concluded that it would be best to sit down and rest a while, first. Now, for the first time, the deep stillness of the place laid a clammy hand upon the spirits of the children. Becky said. Why, I didn't notice, but it seems ever so long since I heard any of the others. Come to think, Becky, we are away down below them, and I don't know how far away north, or south, or east, or whichever it is. We couldn't hear them here. Becky grew apprehensive. I wonder how long we've been down here, Tom? We'd better start back. Yes, I reckon we better. Perhaps we better. Can you find the way, Tom? It's all a mixed-up crookedness to me. I reckon I could find it, but then the bats. If they put our candles out it will be an awful fix. Let's try some other way so as not to go through there. Well. But I hope we won't get lost. It would be so awful. And the girl shuddered at the thought of the dreadful possibilities. They started through a corridor, and traversed it in silence a long way, glancing at each new opening, to see if there was anything familiar about the look of it, but they were all strange. Every time Tom made an examination, Becky would watch his face for an encouraging sign, and he would say cheerily. Oh, it's all right. This ain't the one, but we'll come to it right away. But he felt less and less hopeful with each failure, and presently began to turn off into diverging avenues at sheer random, in desperate hope of finding the one that was wanted. He still said it was all right, but there was such a leaden dread at his heart that the words had lost their ring and sounded just as if he had said, all is lost. Becky clung to his side in an anguish of fear, and tried hard to keep back the tears, but they would come. At last she said. Oh, Tom, never mind the bats, let's go back that way. We seem to get worse and worse off all the time. Listen. Said he. Profound silence, silence so deep that even their breathings were conspicuous in the hush. Tom shouted. The call went echoing down the empty aisles and died out in the distance in a faint sound that resembled a ripple of mocking laughter. Oh, don't do it again, Tom, it is too horrid, said Becky. It is horrid, but I better, Becky, they might hear us, you know, and he shouted again. 
The might was even a chillier horror than the ghostly laughter, it so confessed a perishing hope. The children stood still and listened, but there was no result. Tom turned upon the back track at once, and heard his steps. It was but a little while before a certain indecision in his manner revealed another fearful fact to Becky, he could not find his way back. Oh, Tom, you didn't make any marks. Becky, I was such a fool. Such a fool. I never thought we might want to come back. No, I can't find the way. It's all mixed up. Tom, Tom, we're lost. We're lost. We never can get out of this awful place. Oh, why did we ever leave the others? She sank to the ground and burst into such a frenzy of crying that Tom was appalled with the idea that she might die, or lose her reason. He sat down by her and put his arms around her, she buried her face in his bosom, she clung to him, she poured out her terrors, her unavailing regrets, and the far echoes turned them all to jeering laughter. Tom begged her to pluck up hope again, and she said she could not. He fell to blaming and abusing himself for getting her into this miserable situation, this had a better effect. She said she would try to hope again, she would get up and follow wherever he might lead if only he would not talk like that anymore. For he was no more to blame than she, she said. So they moved on again, aimlessly, simply at random, all they could do was to move, keep moving. For a little while, hope made a show of reviving, not with any reason to back it, but only because it is its nature to revive when the spring has not been taken out of it by age and familiarity with failure. By and by Tom took Becky's candle and blew it out. This economy meant so much. Words were not needed. Becky understood, and her hope died again. She knew that Tom had a whole candle and three or four pieces in his pockets, yet he must economize. By and by, fatigue began to assert its claims, the children tried to pay attention, for it was dreadful to think of sitting down when Tom was grown to be so precious, moving, in some direction, in any direction, was at least progress and might bear fruit, but to sit down was to invite death and shorten its pursuit. At last Becky's frail limbs refused to carry her farther. She sat down. Tom rested with her, and they talked of home, and the friends there, and the comfortable beds and, above all, the light. Becky cried, and Tom tried to think of some way of comforting her, but all his encouragements were grown threadbare with use, and sounded like sarcasms. Fatigue bore so heavily upon Becky that she drowsed off to sleep. Tom was grateful. He sat looking into her drawn face and saw it grow smooth and natural under the influence of pleasant dreams, and by and by a smile dawned and rested there. The peaceful face reflected somewhat of peace and healing into his own spirit, and his thoughts wandered away to bygone times and dreamy memories. While he was deep in his musings, Becky woke up with a breezy little laugh, but it was stricken dead upon her lips, and a groan followed it. Oh, how could I sleep? I wish I never, never had waked. No. No, I don't, Tom. Don't look so. I won't say it again. I'm glad you've slept, Becky, you'll feel rested, now, and we'll find the way out. We can try, Tom, but I've seen such a beautiful country in my dream. I reckon we are going there. Maybe not maybe not. Cheer up, Becky, and let's go on trying. They rose up and wandered along, hand in hand and hopeless. They tried to estimate how long they had been in the cave, but all they knew was that it seemed days and weeks, and yet it was plain that this could not be, for their candles were not gone yet. A long time after this, they could not tell how long, Tom said they must go softly and listen for dripping water, they must find a spring. They found one presently, and Tom said it was time to rest again. Both were cruelly tired, yet Becky said she thought she could go a little farther. She was surprised to hear Tom descend. She could not understand it. They sat down, and Tom fastened his candle to the wall in front of them with some clay. Thought was soon busy, nothing was said for some time. Then Becky broke the silence. 
Tom, I am so hungry. Tom took something out of his pocket. Do you remember this? said he. Becky almost smiled. It's our wedding cake, Tom. Yes, I wish it was as big as a barrel, for it's all we've got. I saved it from the picnic for us to dream on, Tom, the way grown-up people do with wedding cake, but it'll be our. She dropped the sentence where it was. Tom divided the cake and Becky ate with good appetite, while Tom nibbled at his moiety. There was abundance of cold water to finish the feast with. By and by Becky suggested that they move on again. Tom was silent a moment. Then he said. Becky, can you bear it if I tell you something? Becky's face paled, but she thought she could. Well, then, Becky, we must stay here, where there's water to drink. That little piece is our last candle. Becky gave loose to tears and wailings. Tom did what he could to comfort her, but with little effect. At length Becky said. Tom. Well, Becky? They'll miss us and hunt for us. Yes, they will. Certainly they will. Maybe they're hunting for us now, Tom. Why, I reckon maybe they are. I hope they are. When would they miss us, Tom? When they get back to the boat, I reckon. Tom, it might be dark then, would they notice we hadn't come? I don't know. But anyway, your mother would miss you as soon as they got home. A frightened look in Becky's face brought Tom to his senses and he saw that he had made a blunder. Becky was not to have gone home that night. The children became silent and thoughtful. In a moment a new burst of grief from Becky showed Tom that the thing in his mind had struck hers also, that the Sabbath morning might be half spent before Mrs. Thatcher discovered that Becky was not at Mrs. Harper's. The children fastened their eyes upon their bit of candle and watched it melt slowly and pitilessly away, saw the half-inch of wick stand alone at last, saw the feeble flame rise and fall, climb the thin column of smoke, linger at its top a moment, and then, the horror of utter darkness reigned. How long afterward it was that Becky came to a slow consciousness that she was crying in Tom's arms, neither could tell. All that they knew was, that after what seemed a mighty stretch of time, both awoke out of a dead stupor of sleep and resumed their miseries once more. Tom said it might be Sunday, now, maybe Monday. He tried to get Becky to talk, but her sorrows were too oppressive, all her hopes were gone. Tom said that they must have been missed long ago, and no doubt the search was going on. He would shout and maybe someone would come. He tried it, but in the darkness the distant echo sounded so hideously that he tried it no more. The hours wasted away, and hunger came to torment the captives again. A portion of Tom's half of the cake was left, they divided and ate it. But they seemed hungrier than before. The poor morsel of food only whetted desire. By and by Tom said. S.H. Did you hear that? Both held their breath and listened. There was a sound like the faintest, far-off shout. Instantly Tom answered it, and leading Becky by the hand, started groping down the corridor in its direction. Presently he listened again, again the sound was heard, and apparently a little nearer. It's them. Said Tom, they're coming. Come along, Becky, we're all right now. The joy of the prisoners was almost overwhelming. Their speed was slow, however, because pitfalls were somewhat common, and had to be guarded against. They shortly came to one and had to stop. It might be three feet deep, it might be a hundred, there was no passing it at any rate. Tom got down on his breast and reached as far down as he could. No bottom. They must stay there and wait until the searchers came. They listened, evidently the distant shoutings were growing more distant. A moment or two more and they had gone altogether. The heart-sinking misery of it? Tom whooped until he was hoarse, but it was of no use. He talked hopefully to Becky, but an age of anxious waiting passed and no sounds came again. The children groped their way back to the spring. The weary time dragged on, 
they slept again, and awoke famished and woe-stricken. Tom believed it must be Tuesday by this time. Now an idea struck him. There were some side passages near at hand. It would be better to explore some of these than bear the weight of the heavy time in idleness. He took a kite line from his pocket, tied it to a projection, and he and Becky started, Tom in the lead, unwinding the line as he groped along. At the end of twenty steps the corridor ended in a jumping-off place. Tom got down on his knees and felt below, and then as far around the corner as he could reach with his hands conveniently, he made an effort to stretch yet a little farther to the right, and at that moment, not twenty yards away, a human hand, holding a candle, appeared from behind a rock. Tom lifted up a glorious shout, and instantly that hand was followed by the body it belonged to, Injun Joe's. Tom was paralyzed, he could not move. He was vastly gratified the next moment, to see the Spaniard take to his heels and get himself out of sight. Tom wondered that Joe had not recognized his voice and come over and killed him for testifying in court. But the echoes must have disguised the voice. Without doubt, that was it, he reasoned. Tom's fright weakened every muscle in his body. He said to himself that if he had strength enough to get back to the spring he would stay there, and nothing should tempt him to run the risk of meeting Injun Joe again. He was careful to keep from Becky what it was he had seen. He told her he had only shouted for luck. But hunger and wretchedness rise superior to fears in the long run. Another tedious wait at the spring and another long sleep brought changes. The children awoke tortured with a raging hunger. Tom believed that it must be Wednesday or Thursday or even Friday or Saturday, now, and that the search had been given over. He proposed to explore another passage. He felt willing to risk Injun Joe and all other terrors. But Becky was very weak. She had sunk into a dreary apathy and would not be roused. She said she would wait, now, where she was, and die, it would not be long. She told Tom to go with the kite line and explore if he chose, but she implored him to come back every little while and speak to her, and she made him promise that when the awful time came, he would stay by her and hold her hand until all was over. Tom kissed her, with a choking sensation in his throat, and made a show of being confident of finding the searchers or an escape from the cave, then he took the kite line in his hand and went groping down one of the passages on his hands and knees, distressed with hunger and sick with bodings of coming doom. Chapter 32 Tuesday afternoon came, and waned to the twilight. The village of St. Petersburg still mourned. The lost children had not been found. Public prayers had been offered up for them, and many and many a private prayer that had the petitioner's whole heart in it, but still no good news came from the cave. The majority of the searchers had given up the quest and gone back to their daily avocations, saying that it was plain that children could never be found. Mrs. Thatcher was very ill, and a great part of the time delirious. People said it was heartbreaking to hear her call her child, and raise her head and listen a whole minute at a time, then lay it wearily down again with a moan. Aunt Polly had drooped into a settled melancholy, and her grey hair had grown almost white. The village went to its rest on Tuesday night, sad and forlorn. Away in the middle of the night a wild peal burst from the village bells, and in a moment the streets were swarming with frantic half-clad people, who shouted, Turn out! Turn out! They're found! They're found! Tin pans and horns were added to the din, the population massed itself and moved toward the river, met the children coming in an open carriage drawn by shouting citizens, thronged around it, joined its homeward march, and swept magnificently up the main street roaring huzzah after huzzah. The village was illuminated, nobody went to bed again, it was the greatest night the little town had ever seen. During the first half hour a procession of villagers filed through Judge Thatcher's house, seized the saved ones and kissed them, squeezed Mrs. Thatcher's hand, tried to speak but couldn't, and drifted out raining tears all over the place. Aunt Polly's happiness was complete, and Mrs. Thatcher's nearly so. It would be complete, 
however, as soon as the messenger dispatched with the great news to the cave should get the word to her husband. Tom lay upon a sofa with an eager auditory about him and told the history of the wonderful adventure, putting in many striking additions to adorn it withal, and closed with a description of how he left Becky and went on an exploring expedition, how he followed two avenues as far as his kite line would reach, how he followed a third to the fullest stretch of the kite line, and was about to turn back when he glimpsed a far-off speck that looked like daylight, dropped the line and groped toward it, pushed his head and shoulders through a small hole, and saw the broad Mississippi rolling by. And if it had only happened to be night he would not have seen that speck of daylight and would not have explored that passage any more. He told how he went back for Becky and broke the good news and she told him not to fret her with such stuff, for she was tired, and knew she was going to die, and wanted to. He described how he labored with her and convinced her, and how she almost died for joy when she had groped to where she actually saw the blue speck of daylight, how he pushed his way out at the hole and then helped her out, how they sat there and cried for gladness, how some men came along in a skiff and Tom hailed them and told them their situation and their famished condition, how the men didn't believe the wild tale at first, because, said they, you are five miles down the river below the valley the cave is and then took them aboard, rode to a house, gave them supper, made them rest till two or three hours after dark and then brought them home. Before day dawned, Judge Thatcher and the handful of searchers with him were tracked out, in the cave, by the twine clues they had strung behind them and informed of the great news. Three days and nights of toil and hunger in the cave were not to be shaken off at once, as Tom and Becky soon discovered. They were bedridden all of Wednesday and Thursday, and seemed to grow more and more tired and worn, all the time. Tom got about, a little, on Thursday, was downtown Friday, and nearly as whole as ever Saturday, but Becky did not leave her room until Sunday, and then she looked as if she had passed through a wasting illness. Tom learned of Huck's sickness and went to see him on Friday, but could not be admitted to the bedroom, neither could he on Saturday or Sunday. He was admitted daily after that, but was warned to keep still about his adventure and introduce no exciting topic. The widow Douglas stayed by to see that he obeyed. At home Tom learned of the Cardiff Hill event, also that the ragged man's body had eventually been found in the river near the ferry landing, he had been drowned while trying to escape, perhaps. About a fortnight after Tom's rescue from the cave, he started off to visit Huck, who had grown plenty strong enough, now, to hear exciting talk, and Tom had some that would interest him, he thought. Judge Thatcher's house was on Tom's way, and he stopped to see Becky. The judge and some friends set Tom to talking, and someone asked him ironically if he wouldn't like to go to the cave again. Tom said he thought he wouldn't mind it. The judge said. Well, there are others just like you, Tom, I've not the least doubt. But we have taken care of that. Nobody will get lost in that cave anymore. Why? Because I had its big door sheathed with boiler iron two weeks ago, and triple locked, and I've got the keys. Tom turned as white as a sheet. What's the matter, boy? Here, run, somebody. Fetch a glass of water. The water was brought and thrown into Tom's face. Ah, now you're all right. What was the matter with you, Tom? Oh, Judge, Injun Joe's in the cave. Chapter 33 Within a few minutes the news had spread, and a dozen skiff loads of men were on their way to McDougal's cave, and the ferryboat, well filled with passengers, soon followed. Tom Sawyer was in the skiff that bore Judge Thatcher. When the cave door was unlocked, a sorrowful sight presented itself in the dim twilight of the place. Injun Joe lay stretched upon the ground, dead, with his face close to the crack of the door, as if his longing eyes had been fixed, to the latest moment, upon the light and the cheer of the free world outside. Tom was touched, for he knew by his own experience how this wretch had suffered. His pity was moved, but nevertheless he felt an abounding sense of relief and security, 
now, which revealed to him in a degree which he had not fully appreciated before how vast a weight of dread had been lying upon him since the day he lifted his voice against this bloody-minded outcast. Injun Joe's bowie knife lay close by, its blade broken in two. The great foundation beam of the door had been chipped and hacked through, with tedious labor, useless labor, too, it was, for the native rock formed a sill outside it, and upon that stubborn material the knife had wrought no effect, the only damage done was to the knife itself. But if there had been no stony obstruction there the labor would have been useless still, for if the beam had been wholly cut away Injun Joe could not have squeezed his body under the door, and he knew it. So he had only hacked that place in order to be doing something, in order to pass the weary time, in order to employ his tortured faculties. Ordinarily one could find half a dozen bits of candle stuck around in the crevices of this vestibule, left there by tourists, but there were none now. The prisoner had searched them out and eaten them. He had also contrived to catch a few bats, and these, also, he had eaten, leaving only their claws. The poor unfortunate had starved to death. In one place, near at hand, a stalagmite had been slowly growing up from the ground for ages, builded by the water drip from a stalactite overhead. The captive had broken off the stalagmite and upon the stump had placed a stone, wherein he had scooped a shallow hollow to catch the precious drop that fell once in every three minutes with a dreary regularity of a clock tick, a dessert spoonful once in four and twenty hours. That drop was falling when the pyramids were new, when Troy fell, when the foundations of Rome were laid, when Christ was crucified, when the conqueror created the British Empire, when Columbus sailed, when the massacre at Lexington was news. It is falling now, it will still be falling when all these things shall have sunk down the afternoon of history, and the twilight of tradition, and been swallowed up in the thick night of oblivion. Has everything a purpose and a mission? Did this drop fall patiently during five thousand years to be ready for this flitting human insect's need? And has it another important object to accomplish ten thousand years to come? No matter. It is many and many a year since the hapless half-breed scooped out the stone to catch the priceless drops, but to this day the tourist stares longest at that pathetic stone and that slow-dropping water when he comes to see the wonders of MacDougall's cave. Injun Joe's cup stands first in the list of the cavern's marvels, even Aladdin's palace cannot rival it. Injun Joe was buried near the mouth of the cave, and people flocked there in boats and wagons from the towns and from all the farms and hamlets for seven miles around, they brought their children, and all sorts of provisions, and confessed that they had had almost as satisfactory a time at the funeral as they could have had at the hanging. This funeral stopped the further growth of one thing, the petition to the governor for Injun Joe's pardon. The petition had been largely signed, many tearful and eloquent meetings had been held, and a committee of sappy women been appointed to go in deep mourning and wail around the governor, and implore him to be a merciful ass and trample his duty underfoot. Injun Joe was believed to have killed five citizens of the village, but what of that? If he had been Satan himself there would have been plenty of weaklings ready to scribble their names to a pardon petition, and drip a tear on it from their permanently impaired and leaky waterworks. The morning after the funeral Tom took Huck to a private place to have an important talk. Huck had learned all about Tom's adventure from the Welshman and, and the widow Douglas, by this time, but Tom said he reckoned there was one thing they had not told him, that thing was what he wanted to talk about now. Huck's face saddened. He said. I know what it is. You got into number two and never found anything but whiskey. Nobody told me it was you, but I just knowed it must a been you, soon as I heard bout that whiskey business, and I knowed you hadn't got the money because you'd a got at me some way or other and told me even if you was mum to everybody else. Tom, something's always told me we'd never get hold of that swag. Why, Huck, I never told on that tavern keeper. You know his tavern was all right the Saturday I went to the picnic. Don't you remember you was to watch there that night? Oh yes. Why, it seems bout a year ago. It was that very night that I follered Injun Joe to the Witters. 
You followed him? Yes, but you keep mum. I reckon Injun Joe's left friends behind him, and I don't want him souring on me and doing me mean tricks. If it hadn't been for me he'd be down in Texas now, all right. Then Huck told his entire adventure in confidence to Tom, who had only heard of the Welshman's part of it before. Well, said Huck, presently, coming back to the main question, whoever nipped the whiskey in number two, nipped the money, too, I reckon, anyways it's a goner for us, Tom. Huck, that money wasn't ever in number two. What? Huck searched his comrade's face keenly. Tom, have you got on the track of that money again? Huck, it's in the cave. Huck's eyes blazed. Say it again, Tom. The money's in the cave. Tom, honest Injun, now, is it fun, or earnest? Earnest, Huck, just as earnest as ever I was in my life. Will you go in there with me and help get it out? I bet I will. I will if it's where we can blaze our way to it and not get lost. Huck, we can do that without the least little bit of trouble in the world. Good as we. What makes you think the money's? Huck, you just wait till we get in there. If we don't find it I'll agree to give you my drum and everything I've got in the world. I will, by jings. All right, it's a whiz. When do you say? Right now, if you say it. Are you strong enough? Is it far in the cave? I've been on my pins a little, three or four days, now, but I can't walk more than a mile, Tom, least I don't think I could. It's about five mile into there the way anybody but me would go, Huck, but there's a mighty shortcut that they don't anybody but me know about. Huck, I'll take you right to it in a skiff. I'll float the skiff down there, and I'll pull it back again all by myself. You needn't ever turn your hand over. Let's start right off, Tom. All right. We want some bread and meat, and our pipes, and a little bag or two, and two or three kite strings, and some of these newfangled things they call Lucifer matches. I tell you, many's the time I wished I had some when I was in there before. A trifle afternoon the boys borrowed a small skiff from a citizen who was absent, and got underway at once. When they were several miles below Cave Hollow, Tom said. Now you see this bluff here looks all alike all the way down from the Cave Hollow, no houses, no woodyards, bushes all alike. But do you see that white place up yonder where there's been a landslide? Well, that's one of my marks. We'll get ashore, now. They landed. Now, Huck, where we're a standing you could touch that hole I got out of with the fishing pole. See if you can find it. Huck searched all the place about, and found nothing. Tom proudly marched into a thick clump of sumac bushes and said. Here you are. Look at it, Huck, it's the snuggest hole in this country. You just keep mum about it. All along I've been wanting to be a robber, but I knew I'd got to have a thing like this, and where to run across it was the bother. We've got it now, and we'll keep it quiet, only we'll let Joe Harper and Ben Rogers in, because of course there's got to be a gang, or else there wouldn't be any style about it. Tom Sawyer's gang, it sounds splendid, don't it, Huck? Well, it just does, Tom. And who'll we rob? Oh, most anybody. Waylay people, that's mostly the way. And kill them? No, not always. Hive them in the cave till they raise a ransom. What's a ransom? Money. You make them raise all they can, often their friends, and after you've kept them a year, if it ain't raised then you kill them. That's the general way. Only you don't kill the women. You shut up the women, but you don't kill them. They're always beautiful and rich, and awfully scared. You take their watches and things, but you always take your hat off and talk polite. They ain't anybody as polite as robbers, you'll see that in any book. Well, the women get to loving you, and after they've been in the cave a week or two weeks they stop crying and after that you couldn't get them to leave. If you drove them out they'd turn right around and come back. 
It's so in all the books. Why, it's real bully, Tom. I believe it's better in to be a pirate. Yes, it's better in some ways, because it's close to home and circuses and all that. By this time everything was ready and the boys entered the hold, Tom in the lead. They toiled their way to the farther end of the tunnel, then made their spliced kite strings fast and moved on. A few steps brought them to the spring, and Tom felt a shudder quiver all through him. He showed Huck the fragment of candlewick perched on a lump of clay against the wall, and described how he and Becky had watched the flame struggle and expire. The boys began to quiet down to whispers, now, for the stillness and gloom of the place oppressed their spirits. They went on, and presently entered and followed Tom's other corridor until they reached the jumping-off place. The candles revealed the fact that it was not really a precipice, but only a steep clay hill twenty or thirty feet high. Tom whispered. Now I'll show you something, Huck. He held his candle aloft and said. Look as far around the corner as you can. Do you see that? There, on the big rock over yonder, done with candle smoke. Tom, it's a cross. Now where's your number two? Under the cross, hey? Right yonder's where I saw Injun Joe poke up his candle, Huck. Huck stared at the mystic sign a while, and then said with a shaky voice. Tom, let's get out of here. What? And leave the treasure? Yes, leave it. Injun Joe's ghost is round about there, certain. No it ain't, Huck, no it ain't. It would hand the place where he died, away out at the mouth of the cave, five mile from here. No, Tom, it wouldn't. It would hang round the money. I know the ways of ghosts, and so do you. Tom began to fear that Huck was right. Misgivings gathered in his mind. But presently an idea occurred to him. Look I hear, Huck, what fools we're making of ourselves. Injun Joe's ghost ain't a going to come around where there's a cross. The point was well taken. It had its effect. Tom, I didn't think of that. But that's so. It's luck for us, that cross is. I reckon we'll climb down there and have a hunt for that box. Tom went first, cutting rude steps in the clay hill as he descended. Huck followed. Four avenues opened out of the small cavern which the great rock stood in. The boys examined three of them with no result. They found a small recess in the one nearest the base of the rock, with a pallet of blankets spread down in it, also an old suspender, some bacon rind, and the well-gnawed bones of two or three fowls. But there was no money box. The lads searched and researched this place, but in vain. Tom said. He said under the cross. Well, this comes nearest to being under the cross. It can't be under the rock itself, because that's set solid on the ground. They searched everywhere once more, and then sat down discouraged. Huck could suggest nothing. By and by Tom said. Look I hear, Huck, there's footprints and some candle grease on the clay about one side of this rock, but not on the other sides. Now, what's that for? I bet you the money is under the rock. I'm going to dig in the clay. That ain't no bad notion, Tom. Said Huck with animation. Tom's real Barlow was out at once, and he had not dug four inches before he struck wood. Hey, Huck! You hear that? Huck began to dig and scratch now. Some boards were soon uncovered and removed. They had concealed a natural chasm which led under the rock. Tom got into this and held his candle as far under the rock as he could, but said he could not see to the end of the rift. He proposed to explore. He stooped and passed under, the narrow way descended gradually. He followed its winding course, first to the right, then to the left, Huck at his heels. Tom turned a short curve, by and by, and exclaimed. My goodness, Huck! look I hear. It was the treasure box, sure enough, occupying a snug little cavern, along with an empty powder keg, a couple of guns in leather cases, two or three pairs of old moccasins, a leather belt, 
and some other rubbish well soaked with the water drip. Got it at last, said Huck, plowing among the tarnished coins with his hand. My, but we're rich, Tom. Huck, I always reckon we'd get it. It's just too good to believe, but we have got it, sure. Say, let's not fool around here. Let's sneak it out. Let me see if I can lift the box. It weighed about 50 pounds. Tom could lift it, after an awkward fashion, but could not carry it conveniently. I thought so, he said, they carried it like it was heavy, that day at the Hanton house. I noticed that. I reckon I was right to think of fetching the little bags along. The money was soon in the bags and the boys took it up to the cross rock. Now let's fetch the guns and things, said Huck. No, Huck, leave them there. They're just the tricks to have when we go to robbing. We'll keep them there all the time, and we'll hold our orgies there, too. It's an awful snug place for orgies. What orgies? I don't know. But robbers always have orgies, and of course we've got to have them, too. Come along, Huck, we've been in here a long time. It's getting late, I reckon. I'm hungry, too. We'll eat and smoke when we get to the skiff. They presently emerged into the clump of sumac bushes, looked warily out, found the coast clear, and were soon lunching and smoking in the skiff. As the sun dipped toward the horizon they pushed out and got underway. Tom skimmed up the shore through the long twilight, chatting cheerily with Huck, and landed shortly after dark. Now, Huck, said Tom, we'll hide the money in the loft of the widow's woodshed, and I'll come up in the morning, and we'll count it and divide, and then we'll hunt up a place out in the woods for it where it will be safe. Just you lay quiet here and watch the stuff till I run and hook Benny Taylor's little wagon, I won't be gone a minute. He disappeared, and presently returned with the wagon, put the two small sacks into it, threw some old rags on top of them, and started off, dragging his cargo behind him. When the boys reached the Welshman's house, they stopped to rest. Just as they were about to move on, the Welshman stepped out and said. Hello, who's that? Huck and Tom Sawyer. Good. Come along with me, boys, you are keeping everybody waiting. Here, hurry up, prod ahead, I'll haul the wagon for you. Why, it's not as light as it might be. Got bricks in it? Or old metal? Old metal, said Tom. I judged so, the boys in this town will take more trouble and fool away more time hunting up six bits worth of old iron to sell to the foundry than they would to make twice the money at regular work. But that's human nature, hurry along, hurry along. The boys wanted to know what the hurry was about. Never mind, you'll see, when we get to the widow Douglas. Huck said with some apprehension, for he was long used to being falsely accused. Mr. Jones, we haven't been doing nothing. The Welshman laughed. Well, I don't know, Huck, my boy. I don't know about that. Ain't you and the widow good friends? Yes. Well, she's been good friends to me, anyway. All right, then. What do you want to be afraid for? This question was not entirely answered in Huck's slow mind before he found himself pushed, along with Tom, into Mrs. Douglas' drawing room. Mr. Jones left the wagon near the door and followed. The place was grandly lighted, and everybody that was of any consequence in the village was there. The Thatchers were there, the Harpers, the Rogerses, Aunt Polly, Sid, Mary, the minister, the editor, and a great many more, and all dressed in their best. The widow received the boys as heartily as any one could well receive two such looking beings. They were covered with clay and candle grease. Aunt Polly blushed crimson with humiliation, and frowned and shook her head at Tom. Nobody suffered half as much as the two boys did, however. Mr. Jones said. Tom wasn't at home, yet, so I gave him up, but I stumbled on him and Huck right at my door, and so I just brought them along in a hurry. And you did just right, said the widow. Come with me, 
boys. She took them to a bedchamber and said. Now wash and dress yourselves. Here are two new suits of clothes, shirts, socks, everything complete. They're Huck's, no, no thanks, Huck, Mr. Jones bought one and I the other. But they'll fit both of you. Get into them. We'll wait, come down when you are slicked up enough. Then she left. Chapter 34 Huck said, Tom, we can slope, if we can find a rope. The window ain't high from the ground. Shucks. What do you want a slope for? Well, I ain't used to that kind of a crowd. I can't stand it. I ain't going down there, Tom. Oh, bother. It ain't anything. I don't mind it a bit. I'll take care of you. Sid appeared. Tom, said he, and he has been waiting for you all the afternoon. Mary got your Sunday clothes ready, and everybody's been fretting about you. Say, ain't this grease and clay, on your clothes? Now, Mr. City, you just tend to your own business. What's all this blowout about, anyway? It's one of the widow's parties that she's always having. This time it's for the Welshman and his sons, on account of that scrape they helped her out of the other night. And say, I can tell you something, if you want to know. Well, what? Why, old Mr. Jones is going to try to spring something on the people here tonight, but I overheard him tell Andy today about it, as a secret, but I reckon it's not much of a secret now. Everybody knows, the widow, too, for all she tries to let on she don't. Mr. Jones was bound Huck should be here, couldn't get along with his grand secret without Huck, you know. Secret about what, Sid? About Huck tracking the robbers to the widows. I reckon Mr. Jones was going to make a grand time over his surprise, but I bet you it will drop pretty flat. Sid chuckled in a very contented and satisfied way. Sid, was it you that told? Oh, never mind who it was. Somebody told, that's enough. Sid, there's only one person in this town mean enough to do that, and that's you. If you had been in Huck's place you'd a sneak down the hill and never told anybody on the robbers. You can't do any but mean things, and you can't bear to see anybody praised for doing good ones. There, no thanks, as the widow says, and Tom cuffed Sid's ears and helped him to the door with several kicks. Now go and tell Auntie if you dare, and tomorrow you'll catch it. Some minutes later the widow's guests were at the supper table, and a dozen children were propped up at little side tables in the same room, after the fashion of that country in that day. At the proper time Mr. Jones made his little speech, in which he thanked the widow for the honor she was doing himself and his sons, but said that there was another person whose modesty. And so forth and so on. He sprung his secret about Huck's share in the adventure in the finest dramatic manner he was master of, but the surprise it occasioned was largely counterfeit and not as clamorous and effusive as it might have been under happier circumstances. However, the widow made a pretty fair show of astonishment, and heaped so many compliments and so much gratitude upon Huck that he almost forgot the nearly intolerable discomfort of his new clothes and the entirely intolerable discomfort of being set up as a target for everybody's gaze and everybody's laudations. The widow said she meant to give Huck a home under her roof and have him educated, and that when she could spare the money she would start him in business in a modest way. Tom's chance was come. He said. Huck don't need it. Huck's rich. Nothing but a heavy strain upon the good manners of the company kept back the due and proper complimentary laugh at this pleasant joke. But the silence was a little awkward. Tom broke it. Huck's got money. Maybe you don't believe it, but he's got lots of it. Oh, you needn't smile, I reckon I can show you. You just wait a minute. Tom ran out of doors. The company looked at each other with a perplexed interest, and inquiringly at Huck, who was tongue-tied. Sid, what ails Tom? Said Aunt Polly. He, well, there ain't ever any making of that boy out. I never. Tom entered, struggling with the weight of his sacks, 
and Aunt Polly did not finish her sentence. Tom poured the mass of yellow coin upon the table and said, There, what did I tell you? Half of it's Huck's and half of it's mine. The spectacle took the general breath away. All gazed, nobody spoke for a moment. Then there was a unanimous call for an explanation. Tom said he could furnish it, and he did. The tale was long, but brimful of interest. There was scarcely an interruption from any one to break the charm of its flow. When he had finished, Mr. Jones said, I thought I had fixed up a little surprise for this occasion, but it don't amount to anything now. This one makes it sing mighty small, I'm willing to allow. The money was counted. The sum amounted to a little over $12,000. It was more than any one present had ever seen at one time before, though several persons were there who were worth considerably more than that in property. Chapter 35 The reader may rest satisfied that Tom's and Huck's windfall made a mighty stir in the poor little village of St. Petersburg. So vast a sum, all in actual cash, seemed next to incredible. It was talked about, gloated over, glorified, until the reason of many of the citizens tottered under the strain of the unhealthy excitement. Every haunted house in St. Petersburg and the neighboring villages was dissected, plank by plank, and its foundations dug up and ransacked for hidden treasure, and not by boys, but men, pretty grave, unromantic men, too, some of them. Wherever Tom and Huck appeared they were courted, admired, stared at. The boys were not able to remember that their remarks had possessed weight before, but now their sayings were treasured and repeated, everything they did seemed somehow to be regarded as remarkable. They had evidently lost the power of doing and saying commonplace things, moreover, their past history was raked up and discovered to bear marks of conspicuous originality. The village paper published biographical sketches of the boys. The widow Douglas put Huck's money out at 6%, and Judge Thatcher did the same with Tom's at Aunt Polly's request. Each lad had an income, now, that was simply prodigious, a dollar for every weekday in the year and half of the Sundays. It was just what the minister got, no, it was what he was promised, he generally couldn't collect it. A dollar and a quarter a week would board, lodge, and school a boy in those old simple days, and clothe him and wash him, too, for that matter. Judge Thatcher had conceived a great opinion of Tom. He said that no commonplace boy would ever have got his daughter out of the cave. When Becky told her father, in strict confidence, how Tom had taken her whipping at school, the judge was visibly moved, and when she pleaded grace for the mighty lie which Tom had told in order to shift that whipping from her shoulders to his own, the judge said with a fine outburst that it was a noble, a generous, a magnanimous lie, a lie that was worthy to hold up its head and march down through history breast to breast with George Washington's lauded truth about the hatchet. Becky thought her father had never looked so tall and so superb as when he walked the floor and stamped his foot and said that. She went straight off and told Tom about it. Judge Thatcher hoped to see Tom a great lawyer or a great soldier some day. He said he meant to look to it that Tom should be admitted to the National Military Academy and afterward trained in the best law school in the country, in order that he might be ready for either career or both. Huck Finn's wealth and the fact that he was now under the widow Douglas protection introduced him into society, no, dragged him into it, hurled him into it, and his sufferings were almost more than he could bear. The widow's servants kept him clean and neat, combed and brushed, and they bedded him nightly in unsympathetic sheets that had not one little spot or stain which he could press to his heart and know for a friend. He had to eat with a knife and fork, he had to use napkin, cup, and plate, he had to learn his book, he had to go to church, he had to talk so properly that speech was become insipid in his mouth, whithersoever he turned, the bars and shackles of civilization shut him in and bound him hand and foot. He bravely bore his miseries three weeks, and then one day turned up missing. For 48 hours the widow hunted for him everywhere in great distress. The public were profoundly concerned, they searched high and low, they dragged the river for his body. 
Early the third morning Tom Sawyer wisely went poking among some old empty hogsheads down behind the abandoned slaughterhouse, and in one of them he found the refugee. Huck had slept there, he had just breakfasted upon some stolen odds and ends of food, and was lying off, now, in comfort, with his pipe. He was unkempt, uncombed, and clad in the same old ruin of rags that had made him picturesque in the days when he was free and happy. Tom routed him out, told him the trouble he had been causing, and urged him to go home. Huck's face lost its tranquil content and took a melancholy cast. He said. Don't talk about it, Tom. I've tried it, and it don't work, it don't work, Tom. It ain't for me, I ain't used to it. The widder's good to me, and friendly, but I can't stand them ways. She makes me get up just at the same time every morning, she makes me wash, they comb me all to thunder, she won't let me sleep in the woodshed, I got to wear them blamed clothes that just smothers me, Tom, they don't seem to any air get through em, somehow, and they're so rotten nice that I can't set down, nor lay down, nor roll around anywheres, I hain't slid on a cellar door for, well, it pairs to be years, I got to go to church and sweat and sweat, I hate them ornery sermons. I can't catch a fly in there, I can't shaw. I got to wear shoes all Sunday. The widder eats by a bell, she goes to bed by a bell, she gets up by a bell, everything's so awful wriggler a body can't stand it. Well, everybody does that way, Huck. Tom, it don't make no difference. I ain't everybody, and I can't stand it. It's awful to be tied up so. And grub comes too easy, I don't take no interest in vittles, that way. I got to ask to go a-fishing, I got to ask to go in a-swimming, yearned if I hain't got to ask to do everything. Well, I'd got to talk so nice it wasn't no comfort, I'd got to go up in the attic and rip out a while, every day, to get a taste in my mouth, or I'd a died, Tom. The widder wouldn't let me smoke, she wouldn't let me yell, she wouldn't let me gape, nor stretch, nor scratch, before folks, then with a spasm of special irritation and injury, and dad fetch it, she prayed all the time. I never see such a woman. I had to shove, Tom, I just had to. And besides, that school's going to open, and I'd a had to go to it, well, I wouldn't stand that, Tom. Looky here, Tom, being rich ain't what it's cracked up to be. It's just worry and worry, and sweat and sweat, and a wishing you was dead all the time. Now these clothes suits me, and this barrel suits me, and I ain't ever going to shake em anymore. Tom, I wouldn't ever got into all this trouble if it hadn't a been for that money, now you just take my sheer of it along with your and, and gimme a ten center sometimes, not many times, because I don't give a dern for a thing that it's tollable hard to get and you go and beg off for me with a witter. Oh, Huck, you know I can't do that. Tain't fair, and besides if you'll try this thing just a while longer you'll come to like it. Like it? Yes, the way I'd like a hot stove if I was to set on it long enough. No, Tom, I won't be rich, and I won't live in them cuss smothery houses. I like the woods, and the river, and hogsheads, and I'll stick to em, too. Blame it all. Just as we got guns, and a cave, and all just fixed to rob, here this stern foolishness has got to come up and spile it all. Tom saw his opportunity. Look I hear, Huck, being rich ain't going to keep me back from turning robber. No. Oh, good licks, are you in real deadwood earnest, Tom? Just as dead earnest as I'm sitting here. But Huck, we can't let you into the gang if you ain't respectable, you know. Huck's joy was quenched. Can't let me in, Tom? Didn't you let me go for a pirate? Yes, but that's different. A robber is more high tone than what a pirate is, as a general thing. In most countries they're awful high up in the nobility, dukes and such. Now, Tom, hain't you always been friendly to me? You wouldn't shut me out, would you, Tom? You wouldn't do that, now, would you, Tom? Huck, I wouldn't want to, and I don't want to, 
but what would people say? Why, they'd say, mile per hour. Tom Sawyer's gang. Pretty low characters in it. They'd mean you, Huck. You wouldn't like that, and I wouldn't. Huck was silent for some time, engaged in a mental struggle. Finally he said. Well, I'll go back to the Witter for a month and tackle it and see if I can come to stand it, if you'll let me belong to the gang, Tom. All right, Huck, it's a whiz. Come along, old chap, and I'll ask the widow to let up on you a little, Huck. Will you, Tom, now will you? That's good. If she'll let up on some of the roughest things, I'll smoke private and cuss private, and crowd through or bust. When you going to start the gang and turn robbers? Oh right off. We'll get the boys together and have the initiation tonight, maybe. Have the witch? Have the initiation. What's that? It's to swear to stand by one another, and never tell the gang secrets, even if you're chopped all to flinders, and kill anybody and all his family that hurts one of the gang. That's gay, that's mighty gay, Tom, I tell you. Well, I bet it is. And all that swearing's got to be done at midnight, in the lonesomest, awfulest place you can find, a handed house is the best, but they're all ripped up now. Well, midnight's good, anyway, Tom. Yes, so it is and you've got to swear on a coffin, and sign it with blood. Now, that's something like. Why, it's a million times bullier than pirating. I'll stick to the witter till I rot, Tom, and if I get to be a wriggler ripper of a robber, and everybody talking about it, I reckon she'll be proud she snaked me in out of the wet. Conclusion. So endeth this chronicle. It being strictly a history of a boy, it must stop here, the story could not go much further without becoming the history of a man. When one writes a novel about grown people, he knows exactly where to stop, that is, with the marriage, but when he writes of juveniles, he must stop where he best can. Most of the characters that perform in this book still live, and are prosperous and happy. Someday it may seem worthwhile to take up the story of the younger ones again and see what sort of men and women they turned out to be, therefore it will be wisest not to reveal any of that part of their lives at present. <laughs>